many ways the uh, Buddha's teaching on Dhamma, the Buddha's Dhamma, the Buddha's way this challenges our assumptions and I think this is a good thing keeps the mind fresh, keeps it open, keeps it awake yeah. And there are various assumptions that we start to uh, become uh, challenged. One of them, of course, is the sense of um, being a substance, being a body, being a physical thing. And you recognize what you mean by that. <laughs> you can see something, that's a visual experience. You can feel something, that's a tactile experience. You can think something about your body, that's a thought. You can feel a certain mood or impression. My body is sick, my body is big, my body is old. That's an, that's a, that's an impression, isn't it? A perception. Yeah? They're very different experiences. The sight of your body is a very different experience from the feeling of your body. Yeah? Or the mental description of it. And you begin to recognize that all of the ways in which we, which we call reality are really descriptions of reality which very much depend on how, what instrument you're using to describe it. Whether you're using your eyes or your thoughts or your emotions or your sense of touch or whatever. So what is it? <laughs> this may not seem that important but when you recognize this doesn't just refer to your body, it refers to everything. You're dealing with descriptions of things which are very subjective and sometimes one of the amazing uh, realizations we get to is recognizing my description of something is different from your description of something. <laughs> which is pleasant, which is agreeable, which is, you know, which is desirable. Yeah, it doesn't quite add up, does it? Yeah. What, what, how, how, how warm is warm? Yeah. What's a warm day in Malaysia? What's a warm day in England? Very different experiences. <laughs> different languages. Yeah. And uh, you realise how it, how we kind of tenaciously in order to find some sense of stability we tend to hang on to our descriptions of things this is true, this is real you know, this is the right one, this is a good one and then when it comes down to uh, even the teachings of the Buddha we say well what's the truth, what's the ultimate truth I want to find ultimate truth I want to find the absolute reality of ultimate truth or the peace or nibbana or something. What is it? What's the thing I get out of this? You know, somewhere in the back of the heart is a feeling of one day eventually I'll get, I'll get it, I'll get the thing, whatever it is, I'll get it. This feeling or this kind of perception or this blazing light or this quality of mind, I'll get it. Yeah? But the Buddha didn't teach 
any ultimate truth. He never said there was a thing that you get. All he said is, the desire to get things starts to fade out. <laughs> and when it's completely gone, this is what we call Nirvana. You're not attached to any descriptions, you're not attached to the whole assumption of getting something. Yeah. And it catches us, because we find ourselves sometimes feeling and meditating and meditating. I'm not really getting anywhere in my meditation. I'm not, you know, I've been doing this for five years now. Where's the bit? Where do I get the, you know? I want some samadhi or something. You know, there's hunger to get something. And this is where, of course, after a while people can um, lose their sense of energy. You think, oh, I'm fed up with this. I'm not getting anything out of it. You know? This is like one of, the, one of the main hurdles, one of the main obstacles of the spiritual path. We get to this place where we feel we're not kind of, you know, getting, getting our pay. <laughs> getting the wages. <laughs> getting the payoff. Yeah. And you look around and you think, I wonder if he's got it. Right? And when you sit on a retreat with other people, you think, well, she looks like she's really getting it. Everybody else looks like they're getting it apart from me. I'm not getting it. And so it's actually this particular itch, this nervous sense of trying to hold on to something that we begin to penetrate with insight. Now it actually is a rather, it's a graduated process where, you know, for a while in Buddha Dhamma, you do kind of you do get some things. You get a little bit more peaceful. Your mind gets a bit clearer, brighter. Uh, it can be the case that you, you have these experiences of jhana or absorptions. And you feel happy and bright and get this pleasant mood, bright mind. Oh, yeah, I've got it. Wow. This is samatha. And it's, uh, it's sweet. But it's not liberating. It's a, it's a kind of substitute. And the Buddha said, the, the benefit of it is when you get these kinds of experiences, your appetite for sense pleasures fades because they're a bit rough compared with this. Yeah? Compared with the happiness of, of a calm mind. Uh, you know, other, other forms of happiness are just a bit sort of coarse and you don't really like them anymore. The only snag, I think, with samatha and, and samadhi is that when you don't get it, you know, thinking, oh, I'm not, my, you know, it becomes another object of, of craving that you feel, uh, you know, you're not doing well if you haven't got it yet. But actually, for many people in, a, in lay life particularly, you know, samadhi, deep samadhi is not going to be happening. <laughs> because you, you really got to, you know, actually tone down the whole energy and movement of life. So you think, oh well, give up on Buddhism altogether, you know. <laughs> I'm going to get my hit. But the real liberation is insight. And insight, or vipassana, is not about calming the mind, although it generally depends upon a degree of calm. And they say the degree of calm that you need is like 
the quality of composure that you might get when you're really looking carefully when you're painting something or you're giving things what deep consideration it's a kind of measured calm steady no hurried state and this kind of level of calm and you start to question and you question um, some of these attitudes that you begin to witness this hunger to find something or have something and you can see this very hunger itself is causing you stress yeah. and it's based and it has no firm basis the Buddha never said you're going to get anything so it's not like you get, 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 you're getting a bad deal yeah. but he's saying witness the way in which your mind creates a goal and an object and a place to be and a thing to have and just notice the kind of stress that sets up and it's what it's based upon it's based upon a blind assumption yeah. so then we start to begin to wake up from that wake up, wake up come out of that come out of that and then there's a sense of freedom something drops away and uh, this uh, the Buddha said you don't really need to name this because if I give it a name you'll all start wanting it again <laughs> but, but if you do it yeah, then you'll, you'll know the benefit yourself so the truths that the Buddha taught were relative truths, not ultimate truths. The relative truth, truth relating to, or honesty relating to how stress and suffering and unsatisfactoriness gets generated and the kind of uh, uh, dramas that it creates for us and the kind of the sense of self that it creates for us. Yeah. So it can seem, uh, you know, when we do, when we, in, we practice meditation and talk the language of meditation about letting go, that there's a very, it's a kind of very passive process. But actually, insight is quite a demanding uh, activity of mind. It's a very precise. And so you open up the mind, you open up your awareness. That takes quite a bit just to come out of the. the the busyness and the fluster and the drive of the mind and then you start to look into it and keep inquiring and sense the places in your awareness where there's holding on so what is born from insight are very powerful um, faculties and the interesting thing is that the, the faculties and the strengths that are born from meditation are actually very useful for our daily life. So we find, although in, you know, we can very rightly say that the Buddha's main aim was, if you like, transcendence, not about being, you know, uh, a better, you know, a better businessman or a happily adjusted taxi driver, but <laughs> about, you know complete freedom from, from this worldly condition and yet the kind of strengths that the meditation gives us do mean that our daily lives become more effective because the mind is sharper, stronger, 
more focused. Yeah? And these, these faculties are born. Particular faculties are strengthened. And there's whole lists of these actually. Yeah. The Buddha described, he said, you know, things like the ten paramita, which generosity and uh, morality, renunciation, patience, effort or energy, wisdom, yeah, honesty, kindness, resolution, equanimity. Uh, but then particularly, he said there are um, or, the, or the qualities of the heart, qualities of kindness and compassion, which are often needed to unravel some of our feelings of gloom or sadness or guilt. You know, you find you need these, these tonics and needed to sometimes just get your awareness to come out of some difficult uh, habits of self-doubt and self-disparagement. These are examples of the kind of skills that are generated as we come to terms with ourselves, as we meet ourselves, as we open ourselves up. And these kind of strengths and faculties become uh, engendered in the mind, and the mind begins to be developed in that way, in its relative sense. And a particular set of faculties the Buddha described, uh, uh, which I'll talk about tonight, called the four four ways to power or skill or success, depending on how you know what what you're looking at. And these are the kind of faculties you need in just about anything you're going to do. Yeah. So they're very they're very readily applicable, and they they are are absolutely necessary for meditation and as you begin to sharpen them and train them in your meditation because meditation you're really just going back to the the very engineering of the mind you might say to use a kind of coarse uh, metaphor you're not it's like you're not taking the car out on the road and driving it but you're actually opening up the bonnet looking into the engine seeing you know where the bits are clogged and starting to to um, uh, lubricate or free up the, the, the dynamics of the mind. And then of course the car is going to run a lot more smoothly and take you where you want to go. These four uh, idipada, or ways to success, or ways of strength, are chanda, or desire, or motivation, sense of interest, motivating. Yeah. If you're um, gathered up. Virya, energy, you have a sense of persistence or stamina in what you're doing, you, you stay with it. You've got to stay with it factor. Chitta, which means you have awareness, you have an, uh, in, you, an intention that's based on awareness rather than just on reactions or assumptions. And Vimamsa, which means you, you deliberate, you kind of consider, you examine your experience. And with these four are necessary but will give you success in anything you do. Yeah? So motivation, chanda. Now one of the ways in which chanda is translated is desire. And so, you know, 
Buddhist circles this can seem to be a bit of a no-no like all desire, desire is nasty, desire is gross, desire is not, not cool for Buddhists <laughs> but there's a, a lot of difference between uh, chanda or desire and craving craving or tanha is the problem and tanha is an involuntary reflex of wanting, of like, it literally means thirst so you don't decide to be thirsty you don't think, right, now I'm going to be thirsty it just happens to you, it takes over yeah? and when you're really thirsty, everything else disappears you're just kind of craving, lying for that thirst so it's a reflex, it's a pathology yeah? now chanda is a deliberate motivation desire saying I've considered this, this is what I'm going to go for it's not the same as tanha you might say chanda is our willingness to do some work our willingness to serve, our willingness to bring forth something our willingness to apply ourselves to something which is very different from the hunger to, to take something in yeah? so tanha will always give you the feeling of not enough not enough, never enough it's like drinking salt water, it's never enough chanda, so it always makes you feel, tanha always makes you feel small and hungry chanda makes you feel strong it's the, yes we can, yes I can I can at least try and this, so this sense of, of a motivation is actually gives you some authority, empowers you and when we uh, begin to uh, contemplate that or bear that in mind and think you know, what, then it becomes important to whatever you can do check out what, what your motivation is if you are motivated if you do have a, a desire, a wish for it, or whether you're just doing something out of well, past the time, you know, or everybody else is doing it or, well, I'm supposed to do this, you know I'm obliged to do this go along with it, you know so we can live, live our lives just kind of doing things to pass the time or doing things because we think we're supposed to do something or doing something because everybody else is doing it and uh, this um, means you, you don't actually live your own life you're not fully with so desire is the thing that really gives you your life saying this is your choice, rise up if you're going to do it, do it if you don't want to do it, don't do it <laughs> and if it's so that sometimes we find ourselves thinking well, you know do I really want to do this or do I really want to do that we can, but then recognize that generally in, the, in our lives we look at not just um, motivation to achieve something but this will strengthen me, this will challenge me this will bring out something good in me so certainly in my life as a, as a bhikkhu, as a monk then uh, you think well do I really want to do chanting? Uh, I don't feel like it today do I want to get up in the morning at 3 o'clock? No, I don't really want to get up in the morning at 3 o'clock 
Do I want to go and sit in meditation at four o'clock? No, I don't want to go sit in meditation. It's cold out there. I don't want to sit in meditation at four o'clock, do some chanting, sit with another bunch of people for an hour and a half in silence, then go and sweep the monastery. No, I don't want to do that. And then, and then you can kind of hear this voice in your mind going, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. I want to do this so I can get past that voice in my mind. <laughs> you know? So, uh, but then you, you see, you're not just kind of going along with it in a half-hearted way, but you can recognize, I, I want to do this because it will actually make me get bigger. It will help me to transcend my complaining mind, my petty mind, my selfish mind. So we, we get a sense of chanda, which is, I'm going to the meditation, I'm getting up in the morning, not because everybody wants me to, not because it's the rule, not because it's the teacher's going to be there, and I don't want to look like a fool, but because I want to rise up above my habits, yeah? which always bring me down, I want to rise up. Yeah? So life becomes a kind of pilgrimage with that. And I've done several pilgrimages. I did one in India, six months walking in India, which is probably amongst some of the most horrible experiences I've ever had. <laughs> in terms of sickness and uh, innovation and fatigue and confusion and nearly getting killed. Yeah. I'm being attacked by robbers and then getting my head cut off. Um, so, but throughout it, I could always recognise there's that in me which wants to sort of, yeah, I can't be bothered, give up, I want to go home, I want to be comfortable, I want to lie in bed. There's something that says, you can, you can, you can grow beyond that. So when we have this sense of recognising, you know, human beings, we have an enormous potential have an enormous possibility in their lives and it's like a lot of the time we're, we're riding with the handbrake on we're saying well I don't really well I'm just me and I don't think I can do that and after all my brother it doesn't really matter. well nobody else cares anyway anyway it doesn't really matter really. so we, we can find ourselves just motivated by whether we're going to get applause or not you know, we say, oh, wonderful, very good, you're a good boy. <laughs> and you realize, you don't want to be motivated by that. You know, whether motivated by people's praise, because then you're, you're, you're hooked, aren't you? If they praise you, you do it. If they blame you, you won't do it. So we always want to look to how we can rise up beyond these, um, these limitations. Being dependent upon the approval of others being dependent upon uh, how we have physical feelings or our mind states. I think most mornings, particularly in my earlier years of my monastic life, most mornings when I wake up, the first inclination is, oh no, go back to sleep. You know? <laughs> I don't want to get up. You know? So then I found it really helpful just to have the sense of as soon as you, you hit, you get that feeling going, then you, you just lift up. You say, I, I don't want to follow that particular quality in my mind because it's not going anywhere useful. I've seen it 
I've, I've followed it enough to recognise it's not going to be useful. I rise up beyond that. So there's a motivation to enlarge one's potential, to not be bound by doubts, not be bound by self-view, not be not be bound by the opinions of other people. You know, chanda, and it's a very beautiful quality because it always seeks to liberate us from our complaining minds, from our the mind that tries to close us down, the mind that says you can't, you never are, it doesn't matter, why bother, it's not up to you anyway, forget it, you're just a nobody. You know? <laughs> and there's a, a lot of this kind of self-defeat that can go on in the mind. It's a, it's a kind of suicide for our potential. You know what, uh, one of the, the most strongest uh, disease in the, in the, in the world, you know, the most strongest form of life-threatening um, condition is depression. And so depression is a, a very acute form of this sense of self-defeat. So, you know, when you get to a, a, a certainly country, most European countries, maybe 20%, 25%, maybe more of the people are taking medication against depression. And all the time the depression mind says, oh, you can't, you don't, you never will, it's too much, you can't do it, it's like that. And it's like a, it's like a gross form of something we all carry with us, this kind of tendency towards defeat, self-defeat. And the self-view itself is a kind of limitation. So to me one of the uh, real meanings of going forth, of the essence of going forth, which is often used to describe the monkhood, it's not about putting a robe on your back. It's not about shaving your head. It's about the spirit going forth, going beyond rising up beyond what you think you are. Don't let yourself be stuck with what you think you are. Because <laughs> I tell you, whatever, if you get stuck in what you think you are, it will continually close you down. <laughs> so everybody should be going forth. You know? <clears throat> then we can find ourselves have possibility for grandeur, for courage, for faith, for love, for compassion. Action. And it's, it manifests, it's obviously, you know, it's whenever when we meditate, you can't against these defilements in the mind, the hindrances of ill will or doubt or worry, or the, the defilements in the mind seem to be overwhelming. And every time you work against those, you look into those, you don't believe in those, then you develop this chanda. Yeah? And it's the same thing with your daily life. When you come up in the day, when you come up against those feelings of why bother, or who cares, or nobody cares anyway, and you say, well I care, I'm doing it. Yeah? And that's, that's chanda. And it doesn't matter whether you succeed or don't succeed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the end result is. What it matters is in the present moment where your mind is now. Yeah? And this really is the 
the key perspective that we have in terms of Dhamma practice. It's not about a goal in the future. So many of our, our aims are, well, in five years' time I will be. Have I got somewhere after ten years of practice? If you're still thinking like that, that is an obstacle. It's not where you, where you are in ten years' time or how long. Where are you now? That's all you're ever going to be. I, right now, are you oppressed by doubt or worry or comparison or self-view or right now you come out of that, recognize it for what it is and release it. It's amazing how we have, as human beings, have the potential to continually cripple ourselves with feelings of inadequacy, feelings of something else we should be. And without recognizing, you know, what are you right now? This is all you can ever be, and you clarify it and purify it. The goal in Buddhism is the present moment. <laughs> it's it's going to be a, quite a long journey to come to the present moment. Through all the filters and the ways we paint it with things, the sense of real open clarity. Chanda. Be motivated towards that because this is what sets you free. Virya, persistence, the ability to persist with something, to carry on. And this is uh, another essential quality because as we recognize in meditation, things are always changing. So you start something and sooner or later something says, oh, there's a difficulty will come up. Or the sensations it change. Or the mind states change. Yeah. You think, oh well, change your mind, no, I can't go on with this. Yeah. But persistence means you, you begin to penetrate the change of, of conditions and you maintain the course, the straightness. Yeah. A mind that easily, you know, bows or gives up to sensations, feelings, mind states isn't going to go very far. Isn't going to maintain, isn't going to maintain much strength. The strength leaks away. Now the point, of course, the subtle point is when we're persisting, we're not aiming to get anywhere particularly, we're just aiming to preserve and purify the strength and the integrity of the mind in the present moment. So it's rather like you're maintaining your, your presence and these various forces come up and say, oh, don't bother, or it's not important, or it's too much, or you're tired, or whatever. And you say, no. You know, you persist, you stay with it. Most anything you determine to do, after a little while, you're thinking, well, but on the other hand, maybe not. <laughs> Or, on the other hand, maybe I'm a bit tired right now. After all, why bother? What are you trying to prove anyway? Doesn't really matter. And uh, do something else. You know. So, <laughs> persistence requires a sense of aditana or commitment. And when you make persistence, one of the one of the things it does is it does bring up all these kind of you're, you're tested. 
it's like the, uh, the forms of delusion start to, to uh, uh, you know, ask you to, to give up, to don't bother. So, then you, so you persist in order to not go under that. Chitta is awareness. Chitta literally means heart or mind or spirit. It's also involved with the quality of intention. It means there's a sense of aware intention. We're, we're with what we're doing. You could say you put your heart into what you're doing. You give it your heart. You put your heart into it. And so you're not just kind of rolling along, but you really put your heart into it. And you can do this in, uh, you know, I remember an occasion just to give you a, uh, a kind of very, very mundane example. Yeah. Uh, you might find it amusing. As well, I was telling you the other day about the cat we had in the monastery. And uh, this cat was getting very old. It was about 18 years old. This cat wandering around. It gradually lost its eyesight. And then, you know, all the Somebody, of course, has to feed the cat and clean and clean up the cat's mess, you know. And if it's our, oh, whose turn is it? I did it last week. I don't want to bother. And I said, I'll look after the cat, you know. So I thought, you know, if I'm the abbot, I'll look after the cat. You know? I'll take it as my as my life's work to look after the cat. You know? So if I'm going to do something, I'll do it full on. So I'd recognise, you know, I'd get the cat food and I'd get the food and stick it in the bowl, put it down on the ground, there's the cat, you know, the cat food. And after a while I thought, that's not really full, that's not really full. That's kind of half-hearted. So I thought, okay, what I'll do is I clean a place, I get a tray, I get a very nice plate, and I put the cat food in it carefully and I put a little vase of flowers on the tray <laughs> and I make an offering to the cat. <laughs> so if you can do it, do it with a sense of real, not just how here you are enough, but really make an offering. Yeah? I do that, I feel a great sense of joy and love when I did that. It was much better than just treating it as a chore. Yeah? And uh, so I got to really you know, get a feeling of great devotion to this, this cat. And the cat grew blind and then deaf. So it would just wander around. But the interesting thing was uh, that whenever I, you know, if they could, couldn't see and couldn't hear, if I, if I walked close to it, it would immediately sense my presence would kind of come and rub up against me. It wouldn't do it to other people. But somehow it could sense the quality of, of kindness that, that I did establish through this process. It, it, we bonded around this thing. Yeah. So it's interesting how even with that, you know, with, uh, a blind, deaf cat responds <laughs> to full awareness. Is it possible that other human beings would do so, do so? And also, if you're working with yourself, if you do it with full not just, oh well, I've got to do my half an hour meditation, sit down and look at the clock, it's 25 minutes. <laughs> okay, well, maybe 28 minutes is good enough, you know. You can just really do it and put yourself really into it, like, 
you know, you're, you are the bodhisattva, you know, sit there, really make it something that's a very full thing, and as if it's the first and last time you're ever going to do it. So really make it like this is the first time, or this is the last time, you really want to do it completely at this time. Because yeah? you can do practices like that. So, you know, when I come to the, the, the they offer me a very nice kuti here, which is a very fine place to stay. And so the first thing I do when I come to the kuti is I pick up the bedding, I take it outside and I wash the floor. And I wash the walls. And I sweep everything down. Not because the kuti is dirty, but just because it's a way of I'm coming into a place then, if it hasn't been lived in for a while, it may be some dust or something. So I just give it a real full, I'm moving in, I'm looking after the place. You know? So that you, wherever you are, you, you live with it with full awareness of that. So the recognition you know, for myself is I've been offered a building to live in. You know, if somebody's offered me a place with you know, shelter from the heat, fan, electricity, running water, my goodness, I respond to that with a sense of the full awareness of the generosity and the, the, the need for shelter, so that I put myself into it. You don't take anything for granted. You're, you're aware of that. And if it's one day or ten days, or you just live each day as if it's the first and the last and the most important day of your life. You know? Just imagine, example, today was the last day of your life and you've got another three hours of it. So, right, you know, whatever I do, I'm really going to make it something I'm fully conscious of. That's the way to live. <laughs> Not doing it for, you know, just doing it for my own uh, joy. And my own sense of being where I am. If I come to give a talk, I give it what I can, you know, everything that I can. Because there's no... Who wants to do things in a kind of half-hearted way? You only get dusty results. <laughs> so chitta, full awareness of what you're doing, and with that, then you begin to because you've really emptied yourself, you've really brought yourself fully into your situation, and then you can start to examine. Because none of you is held back, you're not holding something back, and you look into, how is this affecting me? Huh? Where am I missing points? Where am I losing out? Where am I, where, where are my mind, where are the defilements? Where are the skillful, the unskillful qualities? And you keep contemplating this, and you develop insight. You start to inquire into how your thinking works, how your, your emotions work, what gives you joy, what gives you the best results. So we monks are careful, scrupulous analysis. Hindsight, you start to, when you've done something, you look back and you think, how was that? How did that work? Was that good? Yeah. Where, where was it? You know, where was I getting impatient or blurred? Well, tomorrow I'll look out for that. Start again. And the, so with this uh, quality of Vimamsa, which is the, our ability to learn, 
he realised there was no such thing really as a mistake, yeah? as a, some kind of real flaw or sin. There are just places where we lost balance, and there are places where we, we said, ah, that's where I can learn. That's the place I can learn at. Yeah? So, one of the frequent uh, uh, sayings of the Buddha is that it is considered to be great progress in this Dhamma to recognize where and how you got it wrong. When you recognize that, this is really the best. <laughs> yeah? He's not saying, I want you to get it wrong, but to the, the ability to recognize, ah, that's where I got tripped up. That was it. This is how you progress. Now, none of us are going to start out being arahants, are we? No? So everybody has to start out being a bit blind, a bit stupid, a bit automatic, a bit blurred and confused. And you don't start out from a place of complete purity and non-attachment. So, are you willing, are you interested in where you get it wrong? Just as like, because if you're not interested in it, how are you going to develop? If every time you, you get something wrong, you go, oh no, I'm you know, wrong, wrong, failure, I'm no good, I'm guilt, shame, regret, I'm hopeless, I'm useless, then, you know, you're not, you're not going to grow, are you? And if you say, oh, that's interesting. What happened was, you know, I got attracted by that, I got confused by that, yeah? that's where it went wrong. I'll, learn, I'll know that weak spot and I'll get it better. That's how you learn in meditation. Yeah? So we choose something like a meditation theme, watching the breath or being with the breathing or being with the body, then naturally your mind zips off every now and then somewhere else. Yeah? Now you can make a problem out of that. You can beat yourself up about that. You can decide that you are a meditation failure. Yeah? You're, uh, you know, you're not in the meditation Olympics. You can make it into a whole game, success, failure experience, or you can make it into something where the moment you wake up, you recognize, oh, I drifted off. That is a moment of celebration. Because <laughs> at that moment, the, the, the quality of sampajanya, or full awareness, arises. Ah, and it arises and says, uh-oh, this isn't it. And that's waking up. That's what waking up is about, isn't it? Something goes, uh-oh, that was the dream, uh-oh. Now, are you going to make something that, when that experience happens, are you going to label that as failure? as a mistake, or you can label that as, oh, how wonderful, the quality of awareness has arisen in me. Aha. Uh -huh. So, this is why I say when we, when, we, when we meditate on breathing in and breathing out, every time your mind wanders off, don't make a problem out of it. But instead, notice there is a moment in which you recognize, here you are thinking about dinner, or what you can do tomorrow, or something or the other, and there's that moment when suddenly you, something in you acknowledges that. Uh-oh. Oh. oh. Yeah. And just wait there. 
wait for a second or two. Give it two or three seconds. Just wait at that moment of waking up. Don't be in a panic. Don't be in a hurry to get back to the breathing. And just wait. So you, you don't put in this kind of reflex of guilt of oh, oh I've made a mistake. But just stay calm. And you'll notice that if you sustain a sense of calm and composure as you wake up to uh, uh, what we're calling mistake, your mind steadies by itself. It calms, it steadies by itself, it clears by itself. And if, you're, if you are doing this in meditation, then you'll find that as it steadies by itself, then your meditation topic returns by itself. You, know, you find yourself, oh, there's breathing, doing mindfulness of breathing. And what this means is that, that we, we don't put this middle man in the way. The middle man is this busy, nagging voice that says, oh, do that, you should be here, you should be there. We cut that out, we just say, let awareness, as you wake up, awareness stabilizes, and then we sense the sensations in the body, and the meditation object returns by itself. And you don't build up a self-view, you don't become a meditator. So one of the problems of meditation is becoming a meditator. Because as soon as you become a meditator, then you want to be a good meditator. And you think you're not a good meditator. And you, you feel perhaps you're not the kind of person who can be a good meditator. And then you think about people who are good meditators, and how you're not as good a meditator as people who are good meditators. And how you're going to be a good meditator, and whether you're ever going to be a good meditator, and how much work it's going to be to get to be a good meditator, whether you really have the time to be a good meditator, whether you've really got the effort, the energy needed to be a good meditator. It's a lot of work to be a good meditator. And let's face it, you're not a good meditator, so keep up. <laughs> So don't be a meditator, it's pain. It's painful being a meditator. Don't be a meditator, just meditate. <laughs> get, that, get that person out of there, you know? That person's going to drive you crazy. Yeah. So then we meditate but we're not meditators. <laughs> And then we do our work, but we're not workers. And then we practice Buddhism, but we're not Buddhists. <laughs> yeah. Don't be a Buddhist. Just practice Buddhism. <laughs> you know, so if you come to be a Buddhist, you start finding fault with people of, of different kinds of Buddhists, what kind of Buddhist you are, which is the best sort of Buddhist to be and whether you're a stream entry or this or the other, or the other whether you're a Theravada Buddhist or Mahayana Buddhist or maybe Buddhism's a bit out of date anyway and you want to be a Vita instead or you know, don't be a Buddhist, just practice the Dhamma yeah. and you practice the Dhamma because you, every, if you practice that all the time 
when you cultivate these qualities chanda, put, be motivated, check out where your motivation is rise up beyond your self-views, your self-defeating dimensions yeah? feel your energy come into your strength, come into your joy feel the joy of living fully in your life stay with it develop your strengths let your strength come into you yeah? this is how we grew up, wasn't it? when you're a little tot and you keep falling over you can't stand up you think, oh I can't never get able to do this <laughs> no, you get up, don't you? you keep getting up, you persist and you can walk and you can move and you can talk and you can speak the language you persist, virya put your heart into it live your life with joy live it with full awareness and reflect on it and then whatever you're doing you're going to get the best results when you get the best results you don't even store them up you just live them out then your mind then your life becomes one that's free from grasping free from holding on free from arrival free from destinations and you're already here so this Buddha Dharma is not about arriving anywhere it's not about being anywhere it's about practicing where, practicing with where we think we are and recognizing we're not. <laughs> it's changing. <laughs> so for this for your reflection tonight. If you'd like to give yourself a few moments and ask any questions or comments, I'd be happy to, to pick up on. quality of, of uh, openness to it so it's not trying to change it or uh, be held by it and you can so if you find yourself kind of somehow in a difficult relationship with that quality so you feel confused by it, you feel tense by it you can use the breathing as a rhythm that tends to give the mind some stability so you, can, you breathe through the vibration you might say so it's not that you drop the vibrations and move to the breath, but you use the breath energy, focus on the breath energy, the breathing energy, and let that move through the vibrations. So it tends to keep things from jamming, from stiffening, from spinning out. So one of the uh, common um, difficulties that meditators experience 
is when they experience um, energies, could be rapture, could be particular energies, and energy has the quality of attracting the mind, it's food, but then it gets, you, you can get slightly hypnotized by it, fixated by it. So we use the breath energy as a means of, of um, stabilizing and, and, and uh, grounding the mind, so it doesn't get caught by these other energies. You know, because sometimes people just start to get very intense, you know, wired up. <laughs> and you want to keep, don't get held by energy, but start to release it these, these, through the breath energy. Breath energy is the energy that moves with when we breathe in and breathe out. It's a sense of uh, calming. Because breath energy has a, has a very healthy rhythm of lifting, rising, and releasing, we breathe out. So that particular um, rhythm of rising or drawing in and releasing and, and letting go, that, that, that very healthy rhythm stops the mind from being stuck in either continually you know, rising up or continually uh, falling down and it keeps it, keeps it fluid. Now, when energy is, when we experience difficulties with energy, with subtle energies in our body, the tendency of them can be to, we feel ourselves tightening or lifting up. And you get this sensation, like, you know, uh, or, or, or on an emotional level. So then, the breathing out tends to keep releasing that, that tendency. Yeah. On the breath and some uh, uh, some forest monks, uh, like Jani Damanaroti, suggested that we adjust the breath energy to a level where we are comfortable. Keep on adjusting and investigating that. Some teachers uh, say that uh, don't do any adjustment, just, just uh, be aware of the breath. So, what is the <laughs> well, I think you, I would, um, I tend to agree with Ajahn Lee to a, to a degree, it's just be careful about how we, how we talk about adjustment because it can be seen too controlling, yeah. you know, you're always tinkering with it. But what, you, what I would recommend is as you're feeling your breath, breathing energy, you sense is there something, am I breathing too much? Do I need to breathe this much? You know? Oh no. You know? So you sense where, um, rather than controlling your breath, it's rather like recognizing where your breath is being unconsciously controlled. And so the breath can be controlled by the emotions, for example, or it, it gets controlled by mind states. Um, so, you know, you feel depressed. It's, breath is very flaccid and shallow, get excited, the breath, oh, we over-breathe. And we don't decide to do that, but the, the mind state generates that in the breath. So, you know, one of the things we do when we uh, cultivate breathing is you, you begin to do some deliberate work on it in order to 
check these influences that the mind uh, implants on the breathing unconsciously, not deliberately, you know, unconsciously generates. So, so you maybe start to lengthen the breathing just to, just to play with it a little bit. And then, I'm not, you know, I say adjust, I would say you just keep checking out is this comfortable? You know, because what you want to do is to aim towards the mind having less and less input into the breathing, being more and more relaxed and open so that we do eventually come to a state where we can just let the breathing be because the mind has given up fiddling with it, controlling it. Yeah. When I mean the mind, I mean uh, one's emotions or one's underlying mindsets have their effect on the breathing. So you need to play with it a bit in order to, to, to get the breath to be free. And then it will start to moderate itself. It starts, generally it starts to go get finer and shorter and subtler. Yeah? And as your mind, so, so your mind begins to follow the breathing rather than the breathing follow the mind. So when the mind is, is, is uh, occluded or has hindrances, then that, that imparts, uh, makes the breathing rhythm becomes irregular or, or out, of, out of, it's not smooth. So you need to kind of keep checking in, is something affecting my breathing? Can I let go of that? Can I deepen? Sometimes people find there's a tension in their solar plexus, for example. So you need to kind of focus down in your belly to, to get that to open up. Or there's a resistance in, under the throat. And since the chest won't fully open up under the throat. So you need to focus above it and get the sense of openness so that the breath can move up. So this is where we might say we adjust our breathing. We uh, recognize where it's being uh, trapped or hindered and you release those. You recognize where you're breathing, you're over-breathing. Your emotions are creating too much energy and you quiet them. And then eventually the breath becomes free of hindrances and then you can step back. That's what I'm suggesting. You can also adjust it in the sense in which um, you can move the breath energy around the body to places where it seems uh, it's needed. You know, places that become stiff or stale or, or in pain. You breathe through those. But it's a subtle kind of adjustment. It's not like, you know, to do, really doing too, anything too coarse with it, but subtle, subtle adjustments. Does that make sense? Uh, Sorry? Meditation, meditation exercise. Sorry? Standard meditation, meditation exercise is done. It's yeah. a very good platform for being aware of four elements. Yeah. Okay. It is a very nice meditation because there's no, you know, sitting often people experience some strain in their legs or their knees or their back, you know, and, uh, and it gets so. You kind of, oh, we're going to go meditate. Here we go again, you know. 
how long did you hang on for? Yeah, the sense of moving through space is a very lovely free feeling, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like, almost as if you're in outer space, like a, you know, coming out of your spaceship. It feels very, the body feels very light. So, and it, it, what it does is it, we recognize with that that a lot of the time, unconsciously, your body is slightly contracted basically because you know, you're moving through, through things and so you, it's a certain sort of shell that you develop and you need to you unpeel that peel that shell off and you can feel really open and your mind calms down I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good I thought I'd agree with you Sometimes, you know, coming from being very busy to sitting down and sitting still, you just, it's like the, the engine stalls. <laughs> going, so if you stand up, you're not going to fall asleep. Because once you sit after a heavy day, yeah. the body wants to And unlike walking meditation, you don't need a lot of room. Walking meditation, you need some open space, but standing, you, I mean, you can stand in the toilet. <laughs> stand in the shower. <laughs> I mean, I recognize exercise simply because uh, it's not just merely standing meditation, which is another stillness that you mm-hmm. have in sitting. It has a slight movement that gives you yeah. Yeah. Uh, a greater sense of awareness, body, yeah, yeah. mind. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, develop it. There's a lot you can witness and learn and and release in standing meditation movements. Because actually when you, you when you consider it deeply you recognize that we're always moving. You know, the breath is moving, uh, you know, the body is always moving. So why don't we actually focus on, on movement as a meditation? rather than imagine meditation is about stillness. Nothing is still, everything is flowing and moving. So then we just get a little more fully conscious of the experience of movement. Uh, what, in the years of coming the what are the uh, uh, few key things that you have learned? Few key things I've learned. Well, the most important thing I've learned, which I tend to forget from time to time, I must admit, is not to believe in my mind. (laughs) Don't believe in your mind.